Be seated. There came a man who was sent from God. His name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning the light, so that through him all men might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. ladies. Let's take a poll. You can talk out loud at me here. What's your favorite Christmas song? Silent Night, Hark the Herald, Angels Sing. Oh, Holy Night, Joy to the World. Chris? Silent Night. Anybody else have a favorite? Chris is cataloging these for the future weeks, so speak now. Jingle bells, all right. Many of you probably know that, that Christmas carols, relative to the long history of the, ch- of the church, are a fairly new thing. In the first 1,000 years of the church, there is little knowledge of Christmas-related songs. The uh, medieval period produced one of my favorites, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, which was written about the 13th century, 12th or 13th century. Then the 18th century produced Handel's Messiah, the Hallelujah Chorus, all of that. But it wasn't until about the middle of the 19th century that most of our most beloved Christmas carols were written. Uh, you know, consider the world's most popular song. This was uh, what Duane said, Silent Night. It was written in Austria about eight, uh, 1815. Joy to the World, around 1840. O Holy Night, around 1850. Angels We Have Heard on High around 1860, O Little Town of Bethlehem, around 1870. So it was really from about 1820 to 1890 that almost all of the familiar classic Christmas songs were penned. The First Noel, We Three Kings, God Rest You Merry Gentlemen, Away in a Manger, even Deck the Halls, Jingle Bells. Uh, These were all written in the mid-1800s. The 20th century, of course gave us masterpieces like Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, uh, All I Want for Christmas is My Two Front Teeth, and the 80s classic, Grandma Got Run Over by a Reindeer. (laughs) And the point is that at the start of each December, we're very accustomed to heralding the birth of Jesus Christ. And we do it mostly through song. In fact, some of the first songs we learn as children They're Christmas songs, are they not? Funny thing, yesterday, uh, kind of a chilly morning, I'm sitting kind of bundled up on the couch with all three of my kids, and we're talking Christmas songs, and somehow, some way, we got to this place, you know, two eight-year-olds and a five-year-old. We were singing Christmas songs, but we weren't actually singing them. We were uh, singing them, we were singing the melodies, but we were making animal noises. So I was mooing, 
Jack was quacking, uh, Avery was neighing, and Mia was oinking, and we were singing through Christmas songs with the animal noises. We might do it on Christmas Eve if you show up, so. But we all knew them. We were all nailing the melodies and having a good time. But in the last 150 years, the Advent season has been very attached to music, to singing. And I think this is part of what makes it such a celebratory and joyful and festive time is because with Christmas, there is something that's to be announced. And that is the arrival of God in the flesh. The king became a baby. And what better way to do that when, than, than with song, with these celebratory tunes? And we saw last week that in writing this gospel, the meaning of the Incarnation was of utmost importance to the Apostle John. The opening verses of the prologue to John's Gospel, they are consumed not with music, but with language dedicated to presenting the second person of the Trinity, really in all of his glory and splendor. And remember, John's Gospel may not give us the facts concerning the birth of Jesus, the manger and the angels and the shepherds watching their flocks by night and the star and all that. None of those familiar features are found in John. But John gives us the meaning of Christ's birth. And he does this to serve the stated purpose of his gospel. It's the purpose that's found in John 20, 31, which says, But these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. That's his primary objective for writing. Believing. Believing. It permeates the whole book. So it's no surprise then, right off the bat, John 1.1, 1, 1, John gives us a Christ worth believing in, a Christ that is eternal. And last week we noted the progression of those first five verses. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word refers to Christ. Then he takes a, a step further and says, not only was the Word in the beginning, but the Word was with God in the beginning. Then he takes another step and says, not only was the Word with God, the Word was God. So Christ is God eternally. He is very God of very God, co-equal with the Father, maker of all that was made. So nothing exists what, what, that, that has been made that he did not make. All of life is in him. That's John 1, 1 through 5. And then this week we come to the next three verses in the prologue. Verses 6 through 8. And uh, we just read them, but we're going to read them again. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, John writes this. There was a man, a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. I'm going to circle back and also read verses 1 through 5. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. This is God's Word. So there in the, in the passage I read first, verses 6 through 8, we'll look at three things this morning. The prophet, who he is, the pronouncement, what he said, and then the purpose, why he said it. The prophet, the pronouncement, and the purpose. But first, I went ahead and backed up and read from verse 1, because I want you to see something about how this passage unfolds. 
there's something abrupt about it. And, and what I mean when I say abrupt is we go from an explanation of the incomparable word, the highest ideal in both Greek and Jewish thought, the word, the logos. We talked about that last week. We go from talking about the word who was God to this man who announced that the word was God. Bible commentator William Hendrickson, he lays out the contrast like this. He says, we go from the one who was from all eternity to one who came at a point in history. We go from the one who is the word to one who is a mere man. We go from the one who is himself God to one commissioned by God. We go from the one who is the real light to one who testifies concerning the light. We go from the one who is the object of trust to the agent through whose testimony men would trust in God. One through five, and then this abrupt change in six through eight as we begin to talk about John. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. That's the prophet. That's point one in your outline. And I may have already mentioned it, but the man identified here is not the apostle John speaking in third person about himself. The man sent from God is John the Baptist. And we call him John the Baptist, not because he was aligned with a certain denomination. He wasn't the first Southern Baptist, as, you know, some might want to claim. He's called John the Baptist because his primary work was a baptizing work. He baptized in the Jordan River. Ultimately, he would baptize Christ himself. That was his primary work. But his primary purpose was to herald and to prepare the way for Jesus. And what's interesting is, every time John the Baptist appears in the Gospel of John, he sort of gets put in his place. He sort of gets put down. And what do I mean by that? I mean the apostle, writing the Gospel, never gives the slightest bit of exaltation to John the Baptist. Here in the prologue, we have information about John the Baptist, and it's following the most significant description of the Word there in verses 1 through 5. That magnificent uh, just exaltation of Christ, the eternal word. In other places, John the Baptist is humbled even further. Verse 8, he was not the light. He was not the light. That's being made very clear. But he came to bear witness about the light. Verse 15 of chapter 1, John the Baptist proclaimed that he who comes after me ranks before me. Verse 27 of chapter 1, where he says, he who comes after me, the strap of his sandal, I am not worthy to untie. And then in chapter 3, John the Baptist says, he who comes from above is above all. And then his most famous words, he must increase, but I must decrease. All throughout the book, John the Apostle is humbling and diminishing the person and work of John the Baptist. And to that you might ask, why? Why did John the Apostle speak of John the Baptist this way? Did he not like him? Why is he always cutting him down? Did he not like his name? Well, no, that's not it. They kind of share the same name. I think the reason is this. Because for 400 years, prior to Jesus, there had been no prophet in Israel. The voice of prophecy had been stilled, had been silenced. And so for 400 years, since the time of Nehemiah, Israel had no messages coming from God. Then all of a sudden, at the end of this 400 years, there appears on the horizon this wild man, John the Baptist, and he is a prophet of God. 
And we read about him in the Old Testament. The prophet Isaiah told of John the Baptist's coming. He wrote that a voice in the wilderness would cry out, prepare the way of the Lord. And Malachi as well, who wrote, behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. So Israel became very attracted to this guy, John the Baptist. And the writer, the apostle, tells us that all Judea and Jerusalem went out to see him and hear him. Why? Because there had not been a prophet in Israel for 400 years. The Spirit of God had not filled a man's teaching in 400 years. This would have arrested their attention. He was so popular, in fact, that a cult actually rose up that still existed as far along as Acts chapter 19. The church at Ephesus was founded there in Acts 19, and it's Paul who's there in Ephesus, and he was talking to some of the disciples of John the Baptist. And the first five verses of of, of Acts chapter 19 says, Paul passed through the inland country, he came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what were you baptized? They said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who is to come after him. That is Jesus. So on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So there's this sort of John the Baptist cult that exists in Ephesus. They're following John the Baptist. They're loyal to John the Baptist. Their allegiance is to John the Baptist. And where is is John the Apostle writing the gospel from late in his life? About the same time he wrote the epistle of 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. He's writing in Ephesus. And where was he an elder in the church? In Ephesus. So John the Apostle would have been very familiar with this this John the Baptist cult. Therefore, he felt like he needed to subtly address it. He needed to mention it. He needed to make sure that, 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 that people weren't confused. And it wasn't like he had anything against John the Baptist. The Apostle just wanted them to know that John the Baptist was nothing compared to the Son of God. Nothing compared to Jesus Christ. And to that, you're probably like, yeah, John the Baptist, man, he was kind of crazy. He wore a Tarzan suit, and he ate grasshoppers and honey. You know, he was more spectacle than substance. We don't, nef- you know, we, we, don't, we don't want to prop up John the Baptist. But here's what's funny. If you want to know who's the greatest human being that ever lived until Jesus, it's John the Baptist. John the Baptist was the single greatest individual human that ever walked on this earth until Jesus arrived. You say, well, was he better than David? Yeah, greater than David. Greater than Moses? Greater than Moses. Greater than Elijah? Greater than Elijah. Greater than Abraham? Even greater than Abraham. Name it, he was greater. He was the greatest human being that ever walked in the face of the earth up until this time. And you might say, well, Jay, that's kind of a sweeping statement to make. On On what basis do you even say that? Matthew eleven eleven, Matthew eleven eleven. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, this is Jesus talking. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. When God wanted someone to do the greatest task, to announce the coming of the Messiah, he picked the greatest man. So this was no crazy man. This was no run-of-the-mill type of guy. This was a prophet sent by God, filled with the Holy Spirit. 
And now you say, well, why are you telling me this? Because here we have mention of the greatest human being that ever lived, but in comparison to Jesus Christ, he's nothing. That's the point. That's why John writes it this way. That's the point. That's why he said, he, Jesus, must increase, but I must decrease. The greatest man that lived up until this point in the world is of no comparison to Jesus Christ. He's a nobody. The writer John really wants us to get the message that the Word is the eternal Son of God and that that is the biggest idea in the universe ever. So comparatively speaking, in, in, in maybe in more visual terms, the greatest man who lived in the history of the world to this point, John the Baptist, is like a flickering match. And Jesus is like a billion suns. So that's the prophet. A great man, but just a man. Now let's look at the pronouncement that he makes. Verse 7 tells us again that he, John the Baptist, came to, wear, to bear witness about the light. Funny thing is, though, John the Baptist never really referred to Jesus as the light. Jesus referred to himself that way. He said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. He said that in John chapter 8, right before he, he healed the man born blind. But how did John the Baptist refer to Jesus? If you, if you jump down to verse 29 of chapter 1, you see that the next day he, John, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And of course he said other things, but this was his initial announcement. And think for a second about all that's wrapped up in that one sentence. The concept of the Lamb, the concept of God, the concept of, concept of sin, the concept of taking away sin, of taking away the sin of the world. It seems the whole gospel is contained in that one sentence. All of redemptive history is in there somewhere. And so John, as a herald of the Messiah, of Christ, of this Word made flesh, when he sees Christ for the first time, he speaks clearly, succinctly, and directly about who Jesus is, about what he's come to do, and who he has come to do it for. That's why verse 7 calls him a witness. Witness is a word related to a court of law. And a witness that's been called to court says exactly what needs to be said. If you are a witness, you speak to the very thing that you know about. You don't talk through different tan tangents or opinions. Nobody's looking to hear what you had for breakfast or who your favorite author might be. A witness speaks to what he's called to speak to. He knows something about the case, and he addresses exactly that. And so John came as a witness, and that means he came to testify to the astounding reality that Christ is the Son of of the living God. So by sending his son, just to tease out the legal analogy, by sending his son, in essence, God is bringing all of humanity into a courtroom where he's saying, I declare Christ is the eternal living God in the flesh. And he says, to show you the reality of that, I'm calling witnesses in to testify. And the first witness is John the Baptist. And then if you're familiar with the Gospel of John, you know he makes it a point to present several witnesses. 
He starts here with the first witness, John the Baptist. And then in chapter 5, verse 37, there's another witness. Jesus says, And the Father himself who sent me bore witness of me. So not only is John the Baptist a witness, God is a witness. That's not all. There's another one. Jesus Christ himself witnesses. He is his own witness. Chapter 8, verse 18, Jesus says, I am one bearing witness of myself. And not only Christ's words, but his life serves as a witness. Back in chapter 5, verse 36, it says, But I have a greater witness for the works which the Father has given me. They bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. So you have John the Baptist, you have God, you have the words of Christ, you have the works of Christ. All of those are brought into the courtroom by John the Apostle to testify that Jesus is the Son of God. But that's not all. Chapter 5, verse 39. Jesus says, Search the Scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. They are they which testify of me. Look at the Old Testament, Jesus says. They testify, they witness of me as well. There are more. The disciples were his witnesses. Chapter 15, verse 27. Jesus says, and you also, he's got the the men gathered there in the upper room, you also shall bear witness because you've been with me from the beginning. The disciples were his witnesses. There's one more, verse 26 of chapter 15. But when the Comforter has come, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he shall testify of me. So John calls together the human and the divine, words and the works, to testify to the fact that Christ is the Son of the living God, God in a human body, but his first witness is John the Baptist. He was not the light, verse 8, but he was sent to bear witness of that light. So for what purpose did John bear witness to the light? Go to the end of verse 7. He witnessed that all men through him might believe. The ultimate purpose of John's witness was that men might put their faith in Christ. Notice the two words there in that sentence, though. Through him. It's pretty important that we catch what is meant by through him. Because when I first read this verse, my question was, who is the him in through him? Is it through Jesus, or is it through John the Baptist? Who is it? At first blush, we might answer Christ, because that's the answer to every question we ask. From our first day in Sunday school, we learn that the best answer is always Jesus. But here, here I'm certain it refers not to Christ, but it actually refers to John the Baptist. And I say that because, and I think this is important, you don't believe through Christ. You believe in Christ. Christ is the object of our faith. John is the agent. It's through the witness of John the Baptist that men might come to see and believe in Jesus, the Son of God. This is why John would cry, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and belief, they go together. They go together. The purpose is belief. It's not belief through, it's belief in Let me just ask you, what about your life? Is your life so radiantly 
putting forth Jesus Christ that others could put their faith in Christ through your faithful witness. That's what evangelism is all about. People coming to faith in Christ through you sharing the gospel. We don't believe through Christ. There's nowhere to go through him. We believe in him. And each of you in this room that believes in Christ, you've come to that place through the faithful witness of someone who pointed to him and said, hey, look, there he is, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And that sin, that involves your sin. For those of you maybe that that have not believed in Christ, today, this morning, right now, I'm the one doing the pointing. I'm saying to you this morning, the same thing John the Baptist said, look, there he is, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We have a sin problem. But we have a glorious Savior. And it's Jesus Christ. In one sense, of course, Jesus is the reason for the season. But in another fundamental sense, sin is the reason for the season. This is not a season of feel-goodism where we think about the soft snow and the candlelight and the silver bells in the distance. Advent is about remembering how dark this world is without Christ. And then it's clinging to faith in Jesus Christ, who is the only light in a world of darkness. And if you miss that, you miss Christmas altogether. I'll conclude with this. When you really look at these verses, you see something sort of tragic about them. If you just glance at them, you can't really see it. You're like, hey, man, this is great. John the Baptist, he was a witness to the light that men might believe. And he was a little crazy, but he was an amazing man. He was the fulfillment of a prophecy in Isaiah. This is all really cool. But it's a bit tragic because since when does somebody have to bear witness to light? Since, since when does the sun have to be pointed out to people? You ever been in a cave? Alabaster Caverns, maybe. It's not too far from here. If you've been in a cave, you know that caves are dark. Like, scary dark. The darkness is almost thick. And that's why if you've ever caved, like done wild caving, you're supposed to carry two light sources. Because it's so dark that if your light goes out, you can actually get disoriented, not knowing up from down, all these different things. But let's say, let's just say, you're caving, the lights go out. But then somebody struck a match. Would someone have to direct you so that you could find the light? No. Everyone would run to the light. It would be clearly seen. It would be fundamentally evident. There's the light. You know what John came to do? He came to point out the light. The darkness was so thick, it had to be pointed out. So within the record of John the Baptist, there's some profound theology being pointed out. There's only one kind of person who needs to be pointed to the light. You know what kind of person needs to be pointed to the light? Blind people blind ones. Everyone in the world is spiritually blind. 
How do I know that? Look at 2 Corinthians 4, 3. I'll just read it for us. Paul writes, If our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world, who's that? Satan? Satan has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. Why? To keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. People are blinded and cannot see the light, and so God's prophets and his preachers and his heralds have come and they've said, look, blind people, take my hand. Here's the light. Here's the light. You will not find it on your own. Here it is. Here's the light. It's like those fish in the Carlsbad caverns. You read about these fish? They've been underground so long that their eyes are gone. All they have are these empty sockets. Someone turns the light on, doesn't matter. They can't see it anyway. And so the light came blazing into this world, and people couldn't see it because they were blind. And John had to be the first one to take them by the hand and say, look, there's the light. And you know something? That's what every preacher does who's ever lived. Our task as preachers, as Christians, as witnesses, is to take people by the hand, to take them in their blindness, stumbling around in darkness, and show them the light. Because without God sending you, and without you proclaiming it, they can't see it. And our carols that we sing, they actually help us with this. Just to come full circle. Our carols don't just talk about falling snow and candlelight. They announce a birth. They point to the light. Long lay the world in sin and error pining. For yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. Light breaking into a dark world. Don't let people miss what they're singing. Don't miss what you're singing this Christmas. You're heralding, just as the one who went before you, John the Baptist. You're heralding the light who's come into darkness, the Lamb who has come to take away the sin of the world. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for our time in this place today. Thank you for your word that you've delivered to us that is rich and full of truth and meaning and your glory, God. I pray that somehow, someway, we've just scratched the surface of that, God. I pray that you would just fill in the gaps of the things that I haven't said or didn't say or should have said or, or needed to be heard, God, by your Holy Spirit. Make that clear to those who are gathered here. God, I pray that if there's anyone here that has never responded to, to the light of the world, that they've never seen their sin as something that needs to be removed from them, but today they understand that it's Christ who is the Lamb, the spotless Lamb, who has come to take away their sin. God, I pray that they would trust in you today, that they would look to you. They would look to maybe those around them, those who they came with, one of the pastors or leaders here, God, and they would seek you and they would find you because they have been revealed today the light the spiritual blinders that were on their eyes have been removed. God, we pray, all of us, that you would remove those blinders, those blind spots, those areas that, that we've yet really to see the light 
uh, give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear. Thank you for this time. Thank you for this season. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.